0: You're listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, visit our website at scottshill.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you who are watching us online, so glad that you can join us. My name is Phil Ortigo. I'm the guest speaker here today. And... Uh, <laughs> It's, it feels like I am I've been it feels like I've been gone so long and it's so good to be back. We had an incredible time with with uh, a a f- 12 other, people, 13, yeah, 12 other people in the life of our church, plus some friends who joined us, had the opportunity to go to Israel. Now, so many people are asking me constantly, what was your favorite part of Israel? And it's kind of hard to put all of that down. Any of you ever visited the Holy Land? How many of you have gone to the Holy Land? Well, if you've been there, you know there's not a whole lot of holy things going on in and around those areas, but it was really cool to go to those sites. And, and so people said, oh, are you going to show us some pictures? Well, yeah. I've got a few that I want to show you. Um, And so let me just give you a couple of things that stood out to me. One, we were in Nazareth where Jesus grew up, and I had the opportunity to stand in a very synagogue that Jesus grew up in. And can you imagine the Lord Jesus sitting there and hearing the instruction of the Word of God, and there we are in the presence in this place. But then I had the opportunity to stand in the Jordan River, and it is very muddy, very nasty, and very cold. But this is probably the place where they say that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, so it was so cool to stand in there. Nobody from our group wanted to be baptized again. I mean, look at the water. And, uh, and so we, we just had the opportunity to look at that. Then in Jerusalem, I had the privilege of standing to pray on the wailing wall. This was so cool because I'm surrounded by Jews who are praying to a God in whom they reject his son, And I'm there as a Gentile experiencing the work of God's redemptive work through his son and having access to him and praying on behalf of the people of Israel. So it was really cool to be there. Then to walk down the Via della Rosa, the very path that Jesus walked on the way to the cross, and it was so cool walking there, realizing that I'm walking where His last footsteps were before the resurrection, and so that was pretty cool. And then to go to the lowest place on earth—I don't know if you know that the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the entire planet. It is um, like, um, I don't know, below sea level. So, uh, <laughs> so it's really low. And so while we were there, I didn't bring my swimsuit. I forgot it in the hotel room. So I got to s- just stand in the water. And there was a number of folks in our group actually went in the water and you float and everything. And so it was really cool to be in the Dead Sea. But while I was there, I noticed it wasn't the only the lowest place on earth. It's also the lowest juice bar on earth. And I went a little bit further and discovered this, the lowest bar in the world. And while I'm looking at that, an American walks past me and sings, you got friends in low places. And I guess that's true. But it was really just a great time for us to celebrate together. We're hoping that maybe in March of 24, we'll be able to take a group from the church. March is a cooler month as things are greener. It gives people an opportunity to raise some money until then. We had a great time, not with just our group, with some folks from um, other places as well. There were five individuals from Northern California who joined us. There were four people from Wisconsin who joined us. There was a couple from Australia. Australia, And I made really good friends with a couple named Greg and Lori To Beats. And um, they're from South Dakota. And in fact, they're watching us this morning online. So would you join with me in welcoming them online by saying, hey, y'all. Hey, there you go. There's our Southern welcome to the DeBeats family. Now, if you would take your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. We're continuing on in our study of 1 Timothy that we've entitled For the Church. Now let me just remind you why we're doing this series. Of all the series that we could do, why are we choosing to do 1 Timothy during this time? When you read through the New Testament, you will find times that there are instructions or there's information that will fall in one or two categories. Sometimes information falls in terms that are descriptive in nature. For example, when you read through the book of Acts you find many things that the church did, but it was descriptive. It is just simply describing what the church did. And those times of when we get instruction that are descriptive in nature, that does not mean we need to follow that pattern. For example, in the book of Acts when they were going to replace Judas as one of the disciples, they had two men and they had to decide how to choose the right one, so they threw dice. They threw lots. And they trusted God. That is a descriptive thing. That's not a way for us to practice choosing our pastors today by throwing dice. Okay. Um, and so, uh, it is a descriptive thing, but then you find times in God's word that instruction is prescriptive. That means these are the things that you are to do. 1 Timothy is a book that Paul wrote to Timothy as he is pastoring Ephesus, and the entire book is prescriptive in nature. He's telling Timothy, these are the ways that the church should function. This is the structure for leadership. This is how you are to conduct yourself in the house of God. So as we look at 1 Timothy, it's one of the clearest pictures for a prescriptive way of doing church that we find in all of the New Testament. Now, why is that important? Because we're living in a culture today where the church has forgotten who she is. We're living in a culture today where the church has forgotten how she is to function. We're living in a culture today where the church has lost sight of how to set apart godly qualified leaders and how that should impact the life of the church. We're living in a culture today where the church is more concerned with what the culture thinks about its practices than what God thinks about its practices. And so, what we're doing is we want to be very intentional and looking at what God's word says is how we are to function as a body of Christ. So, as we go through this book and as we're looking at all of the prescriptive details of how we are to function. We don't get all of the picture clearly, but we must walk with integrity and we must walk with wisdom in seeking to model our church after the instruction of Scripture. Now, ultimately, I'm not responsible for other churches in the culture. I'm not responsible for other churches in our community, but our elders are responsible for how we function as a body of Christ here at Scotts Hill, And we are passionate about this. And our focus is to walk through this passage in such a way that we understand what God's desire is for this local church. And there were three pillars that we see that stood out. Paul says to guard the gospel. And we're going to be about guarding the integrity of the truth of the gospel. I just want to say all the songs you heard today was a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ of God's Son taking on your sin by dying on a wooden cross at the predisposed plan of Almighty God from eternity past to satisfy His wrath that you might have a relationship with a holy God. And we're going to protect the integrity of the gospel. Secondly is to govern the church as best as we know, is to look at Scripture and to see what God's Word says and how we are to structure ourselves in such a way that we govern the body of Christ in a way where God is glorified. And thirdly, is to guide for godly living. is to help you to understand how do we live godly in a world that is ungodly. How do we apply the principles of God's word to our lives in such a way that we live distinctively different from the world? And the instruction that God gives us in his word, I want to tell you, is counterculture today. It goes against what the culture is saying. It is not popular in our culture. It is not politically correct. It is not socially correct But it is biblically correct. And we're gonna be a church that's gonna walk according to those things. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, the Apostle Paul is going back to the topic of elders again. But this time he's going back to the topic of elders and how the church is to respond to the leadership of elders. Now, before we jump into that passage, I want to remind you of three things of the nature of the church. We've not talked about this before, but you understand this to be true. There are two things that the church is not, and there's one thing that the church is. Let me explain that to you. Number one, the church is not a democracy. The body of Christ isn't a democracy. Elders are not put into place as representatives of certain constituent groups in the life of the church so that they can make sure that they get everything they want out of leadership. That's not how it happens. That's government. And we're seeing the absolute breakdown of any efficiency in government like we've never seen before. And we're not going to operate in a democracy. Here's the second thing the church is not. The church is not an autocracy. There's not one person in charge. The senior pastor is not the CEO of the church. The the church is not controlled by one individual who calls all the shots. We see that nowhere in the pages of scripture. So what is the church? The church is a theocracy. That means Jesus is the one who's the head of the church. This is his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the deacons' church. It's not the members' church. It is Jesus' church. It belongs to him. In fact, let me put it in a little diagram that can help you. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Elders must submit to the lordship of Jesus, all members must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the preeminent person that we worship, we serve, and we follow. He is above everything, as we just sang. But the elders who submit to Jesus Christ are responsible for leading the body according to the truth of God's word. And the members are not only submissive to Christ, but they're also to be submissive to the elders who are following the instructions of Christ. Now, there's one piece I didn't add in here. While the members submit to elders, elders are accountable to both Jesus and to the body. Now, here's what I love about this passage we're about to look at. That this is not Paul saying blindly that the body of Christ is to just simply do whatever the elders say. There is a mutual submission, but there is an accountability where elders are accountable to the Lord Jesus, but we're also accountable to you, the body of Christ. And in this passage we're about to read, there are five points that Paul lays out. I'm just going to give you right now. He talks about the church's celebration of pastors, compensation of pastors, accusations against pastors. Then he talks about the termination of unqualified pastors and then the examination of future pastors. These are the five things we're gonna talk about today. And I'm giving to you right now because they hinge on these. And as we unpack these passages, you're going to see clearly what Paul is saying. And when he says this, this is all in response to how the body is to respond to elders. Now, let me say straight up front, some of this is hard for a pastor to preach on because it can sound kind of like self-promoting. It can sound like um, um, self-protecting in these things. And we don't want to do that. We want to preach what God's word says. So here's what Paul says. Take your scriptures, take your devices. First Timothy chapter five, beginning in verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. "'Do not admit a charge against an elder "'except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. "'As for those who persist in sin, "'rebuke them in the presence of all "'so that the rest may stand in fear. "'In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus "'and of the elect angels, "'I charge you to keep these rules "'without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. "'Do not not be hasty in the laying on of hands, "'nor take part in the sins of others.' Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we look through this passage, guide us, speak through me, enable us to understand what it is that you have for your people at Scotts Hill. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me give you the five things. But before we do, let me remind you of what an elder is. In chapter three, he gives us the picture of an elder, and this is what we've defined as an elder. An elder is a qualified man who oversees the work of the church with other qualified men by means of shepherding and caring for the body. Elders, all through the pages of Scripture, are only seen as male leadership in the life of the church who fulfill certain qualifications to serve in that position. They are elders, they are pastors, they are overseers. And this position is reserved for men all through the pages of scripture. And that is our position at Scotts Hill. So what is our response to be towards elders? Five things. Number one, Paul says the body should respond rightly in the celebration of elders. And he says this in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, Jamie really did everybody a good job when he led us in prayer. He asked, how many of you remember that this was Pastor Appreciation Month and two of you raised your hand? Then he got you on the hook. Oh, how many of you don't care about that? You appreciate them every day and everybody raised their hand. I love his approach to that. But the point here is what he's saying is he's saying that the church should have a celebration Because of its elders. Or they should celebrate the elders by honoring them. Now, the word honor in this passage actually means to respect them. And he says all elders rule. Every single elder on staff is called to rule. Now, the word rule does not refer to ruling man-made regulations or traditions or rules. It all has to do with leading people accurately, and appropriately in the Word of God. So every elder's job is constantly to point people to God's Word. Now, all elders are called to do that. But some elders do it very well. And he says, for those elders who regularly demonstrate the relevancy of God's word in your life in all situations, and who are guiding the body of Christ towards godly living to the word of God, they receive a double honor. What does that mean? That means they are to be honored for their position, but they're also honored for their practice. That means that they're not only just honored because they are an elder in the church, but they are double honored because of the way they lead and they're actively involved in the lives of members in the church. For those individuals are the ones who know the heartbeat of the church. They know the difficulties that people are going through. They know the heartbreaks. They know the struggles. They know the joys. They know all of the issues of people's life and they are involved in their life. Like a good shepherd, you can always tell when a shepherd's a good shepherd because he smells like his sheep. And an elder who does well is one who's involved in the lives of the sheep to where people recognize and they honor this man, not only because of his position, but because of his involvement in the life of the church. And he says, especially for those who are preaching and teaching. Now, some people will say that Paul is creating two levels of elders. There's some ruling elders and there's some teaching elders. That cannot be true because all elders rule and all elders are required to teach. So as a result, all elders rule and teach. And those who work hard, the word in the Greek for working hard, who labor, that word means working to the point of exhaustion. These are not lazy men. These are men who work hard in studying and understanding the truth of God's word. So no matter what platform they're on, they have been prepared to bring the truth to the church for the purpose of their well-being. Now, I want to say that there's a lot on the internet today that you can find. And there are a lot of pastors today who find their sermons on the internet. They Google on Saturday night and they preach them on Sunday morning. And there are a lot of people who get their messages from podcasts. Now, let me just say something. I do a lot of research myself. I listen to a lot of sermons. I read a lot of commentaries. But what I bring to you is my own outline that's flowed from a heart of prayer and asking the Holy Spirit on what he wants for you to hear. And I am glad to say that all of our pastors do the same thing. We are committed to doing that to do what is right for you. And so the charge that Paul says is the first thing to do is for the body of Christ to celebrate elders, especially when they're working hard for the glory of God. One of the things I love about this church is you have been so good at doing that. We have opportunities that we honor our staff and our elders. Those who've worked for for the life of the church in five-year increments, we're always doing that and you do such a wonderful job of honoring them. I thank you for all the cards and the letters and the gift cards to eating places this month that I've received from so many of you and just honoring elders for their hard work. But I want to tell you, that's not true of every church. I know of situations where pastors have never been honored by the churches that they serve. Matter of fact, there's a couple that's been attending our church. They were in ministry. They're no longer in ministry. They're coming here because they've been going through a hurtful time and they're going through a healing process. And on a Sunday not long ago, when we brought Jim Dunn up here and you honored him for his 25 years of service and you gave him a cruise for he and his wife and a financial gift, that couple told me they wept the entire time. Wept with joy because they had never ever as a pastor and pastor's wife been honored for their work. Thank you for doing that for our staff. And what you don't realize are how many pastors are no longer in the ministry because of the hurtfulness that they've experienced through the years. And when you honor and you celebrate, you encourage them all the more. So Paul says, celebrate your elders Here's the second thing he says. The body should respond rightly with compensation for elders. Not just celebration, but compensation. Again, this sounds self-serving. I'm preaching the passage and, and Paul is bringing out the truth. Here's what he says. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 and then he quotes Luke Chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said the, the, the laborer deserves his wages. It's interesting that Paul quotes Luke and calls it scripture, which tells you how important that is. But both of these have to do with compensating those who serve the body of Christ and compensating them well. Matter of fact, Paul was very, very um, reluctant to speak about such terms. He himself wanted no compensation from the body. He was a tent maker. He served on the side, and he had his, his income from another source because he wanted nobody to accuse him of preaching for the sake of financial profit. However, he defends this position. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Do you not know? that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrifice, sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's really interesting. He's just simply saying those who serve in the life of the church should be compensated by the church. This is not just pastors, but this goes to all staff as well. It's very clear. It's a biblical principle that is taught both Old Testament and New Testament. But let me tell you the sad thing is. The sad thing is many churches out there today don't see the work of ministry as real work. Many people think that all of us who own staff, who serve as pastors in any capacity, all of our ministry leaders, we're just on a lifelong retreat together. We're on a lifelong church conference where all we do is sit around and read the Bible and we have prayer and we listen to podcasts and sermons and sing kumbaya all day long. And then we just go home on a cloud and life is just like that. And so if it's not real work, it doesn't deserve real pay. And a lot of churches have that mentality. My first church that I served, my first church that I served, They paid me so little that Chris and I actually lived out of our savings for two years. When we came here, all we had to our name was a $700 check and our furniture. That was it. And then we rented a house, and I had to put $700 down for the first month's rent. So when we moved here, we were flat broke. We had no money. And when I interviewed for this position... Initially, there was a man who's no longer here in the church, but on that committee, he came to me, and here's his question. He says, Phil, how little can you come for? (laughs) And he kind of chuckled as though he was joking, but he wasn't joking. I said, Let me ask that, let me answer your question with a question. And here's what I said to him How little work can I do, and you'd be satisfied with me? He said, Great answer. And I said, Here's the reason I asked that. If I'm going to come and give you my very best to my last breath, should the church not do the same? And what has happened, I will say, this church has been wonderful with all of our pastors. This church has been wonderful with our ministry teams. You have done so well in taking care of our needs. You've done so well in making sure that our families are supported as we give ourselves to ministry And I'm really always been concerned, not only for my pastors, but all of the ministerial staff. And for many years, many, many years, I turned down raises so that they can be better adjusted because I did not want to lose any of my staff. Then the executive team came to me and said, pastor, you can't keep doing that because that's doing a disservice to your job and your position. And if you die today, we got to replace you. And we're going to have to pay that person the right level. Let us adjust your staff to where it needs, your pay where it needs to be. And they've done that. And they have a heart. If we're going to attract top shelf people, we've got to be able to take care of top shelf people. And I bless the Lord for that. Now, like the apostle Paul, let me tell you what I wish I could do. I wish my income would come from somewhere else. I wish my income would come from somewhere else so I would be free to be able to do the ministry without anybody ever accusing me of doing this for the prophet. I was reading about um, Rick Warren in his church. He's been there for many years, he retired recently, but he had written his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He did so well on the book that he paid back his salary for 25 years to his church. And he worked until his retirement without ever drawing a salary. Now don't get any ideas about me, okay? (laughs) because I haven't written a book yet. <laughs> but if I could, I would. Maybe if I can win the lottery. I don't know, no, you say that's blood money. Well, anyway, that, if I could, I would do that. And you have done so well, so well in taking care of your staff. But here's the third thing. Now we're moving into an area that's really important. Thirdly, the body should respond rightly when an accusation is made against an elder. I think this is a place where many churches fall very short in. And he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now he says, do not admit a charge on an elder except for the evidence of two or three witnesses. What kind of charge is he talking about? He's not talking about petty things. He's not talking about just dislikes of personalities. He's not talking about the fact that simple shortcomings that we all have. I've already said that as elders, we are not perfect, and I've already explained to you my imperfections in my own life. In fact, this past week, I had to apologize to one of my pastors for the way I responded in a situation that demonstrated frustration and not grace. And I asked him to forgive me in that. And so that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about accusations of gross moral failures that would disqualify a person from the ministry. That's what he's talking about, that you need to be careful when there are accusations coming along. And he says that there are two rules, Timothy, that you must follow. Let me give them to you. Number one, do not entertain accusations from an individual who has an ax to grind. You don't entertain accusations from a person who just doesn't like one of the pastors or someone who is spreading gossip around, someone who has no witnesses, but an individual who just is critical and wants to tear down a particular pastor or a ministry leader, and they have no basis to their accusation. Do not give them any attention. Why? Because it's what I call sideways talk. And you know what sideways talk is? It's gossip. And gossip is sin. I love the way C.H. Spurgeon used to handle this. He said that when somebody came to him and wanted to accuse him of something that was false accusation he would begin by saying okay listen i have no memory that i've done that could you do me a favor could you write down all the details of these accusations all the witnesses that you have and all the ways you think i need to be handled he said they never write it down because people never write down their gossip and so he says be careful Don't just listen to any gossip and then jump on the bandwagon of the gossip machine and destroy a person's life if there's no cause. But then he says this, secondly, do investigate accusations when there are two or three witnesses who can testify of the accusations. If there are two or three witnesses, then investigate it. Now, that doesn't mean that the accusations are going to be true. You simply investigate it because what happens a lot of times, two or three people are listening to the same gossip and none of them has adequate information about it, but they're just repeating the gossip of what I heard. Yes, I heard that too. Well, I also heard that all of that is insufficient. None of it is credible because it's simply gossip. So we need to be careful. Let me tell you why many churches fail in this. I know way too many churches who are listening to the gossip mill in the church and key prominent leaders who don't like their pastors or don't like their leaders are beginning to spread gossip and they're beginning to talk negatively. And because these are powerful members in the church, they control the position. And I have seen, I have witnessed men of God's lives smeared and destroyed because of the gossip of people in the church who just don't like them. I'm telling you, it's real. And any person who participates in that kind of activity is an instrument of Satan who wants to undermine the work of godly leaders. I'm thinking of a church right now, of that poor pastor who poured his heart out for everything in teaching the truth of the gospel. And that handful of controlled people in the life of the church destroyed his ministry. Because they didn't like what he preached, they didn't like the truth that he taught, and they didn't like the stand that he stood on. And his entire family had to be moved, and they're out of ministry today. Be careful, he says. Now, here's the thing critical people never lack for arrows to fire and every ministry leader will be falsely accused, Every person in ministry will have times where people will not like them and they will spread rumors about them. I remember many years ago, we were looking at doing a satellite campus down in Monkey Junction. Some land was given to us. We were looking at the wonderful opportunity of doing that. We were talking about how are we gonna do that? How am I gonna transport there? And some people who didn't like the idea of us doing that and accusing me of just simply wanting to build my name and build a great ministry with my name on it, started going around and telling people that Pastor Phil has asked for a helicopter (laughs) to get him there. I mean, he was everywhere. He's going to get a helicopter. We're spinning money. on a I don't even have a moped. (laughs) Have you seen my truck? (laughs) Most of my windows are not even powered, controlled because they don't work. And that kind of stuff is the stuff that is not even to be considered. However, where Paul says to protect a pastor against false accusations, if they are true, there is no immunity for that pastor. And here's the third thing. Fourth, the body should respond rightly in the termination of an unqualified elder. Wow. See, that's what I love about Paul. He's saying as a body of Christ you have a responsibility of making sure that your elders are walking according to godly character and according to godly criteria. He says this, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. If the accusations are true, if an elder has fallen into moral compromise, if an elder has sinned and has not kept the criteria that's required for him to lead the body of Christ, This instruction is very clear. The first thing it says, and if he persists in sin, which means if he has proven to have lived that sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. The all is not just a body of elders. The all is the body of Christ. If a man who is serving as an elder on his staff finds himself in a moral compromise and he has proven that he has walked in sin, the next step is very clear, is to rebuke him. The word rebuke simply means to expose, to bring to light before the congregation. Now, if that individual repents, he can be restored to the body. But that does not mean he'll be restored to a position of spiritual leadership in the church. Why? Because if his character has been demonstrated a flaw, and there's loss of confidence in his ability to spiritually lead the body, he will never be effective. And you might say, well, that's kind of harsh. Where's the issue of forgiveness? The issue is not about just forgiveness. The issue is about godly quality of leadership in the life of the church. It is so serious that it reminds everyone of the consequences that could follow when you walk into such ways. Then he says this. He says, in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Here's what he's saying. All of heaven is watching you, church. God the Father is watching. The Lord Jesus Christ is watching. How are you gonna handle this? The elect angels themselves are watching and the world is watching. And if we do not take such situations seriously, then not only do we grieve all of heaven, but we demonstrate to the world that holiness and purity are overrated for spiritual leadership. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means when we find an elder that is in a situation like this, it must be exposed, that individual must be removed And we recognize that while there's forgiveness and restoration, there's no longer the qualification to serve in that position. Let me tell you what a lot of churches do today. None of that. You know what they do? They quietly dismiss someone. They release them without telling you anything. And you know what they end up doing? This is dangerous. They end up sending those individuals with character flaws to other churches to do it again and again and again. It is our responsibility as a body of Christ to demonstrate restoration and forgiveness, but to call it out. And so that we actually protect not only this body, but other bodies in the future. Let me tell you what some churches do. There are many churches in our country today that have pastors who have fallen to gross immorality. And rather than taking this stance, they protect the pastor. Why? Because he's the face of the church. He's their means of success and growth. And we're not going to dismiss the thing that's causing us to grow when all the while they're violating the very principle of God's word and rather taking seriously this issue of moral failure. They just simply pass it away, sweep it under the rug, cover it up for the reputation of their ministry and not for the character of God's word. And there's to be no partiality If a senior pastor is involved in moral failure such as that, he should be rebuked and removed. If an associate pastor, rebuked and removed. Assistant pastor, rebuked and removed. Now, are there some failures that do not require termination? Yeah. For instance, if a person is dealing with issues of pride... And there are issues that need to be addressed and he needs to take a break so he can deal with those issues. That's not the same thing. Or if there's a person who may be dealing with something that he inappropriately did, but didn't cross a moral line and he needs to be recovered in that situation, yes, there are opportunities for that. But for gross moral failures, the church needs to be serious in this task. And I'm setting myself before you as well because that is to be required of every single situation. It's a heavy thing for the church to deal with. Several years ago, we did that at this church. We had a staff member who had crossed a moral line, who confessed it openly. And then when we set up the plan to be able to seek to and, and, and he confessed this to me, but to seek to present it before the body, to rebuke that, to restore him, but to terminate him created a moral dilemma in our church because he had a lot of followers and it created a lot of unrest. And we knew that it would, but the biblical principle was there. And rather than quietly dismissing someone and sending a person to another church, The scripture required that we do this before all of heaven. This is a tough thing, but I believe this. (sighs) If local churches and ministries would practice this more, we would not have sexual abusers being passed on and on and on and on in the life of churches. We deal with them, call it what it is, disqualify them, love them back into fellowship, but recognize ministry's done. And that's one of the responsibilities of your response to the leadership in an appropriate way. Now, here's the last thing, and I don't really have any time for this, but the body should respond with the proper examination of a future elder. That's how he wraps it up. The body needs to go through a good process of finding right, qualified people. Now that's always hard. It's always hard because we don't always know what's in people's hearts. They may say one thing, they may model another thing, but things may cre- creep up later or there may be some situations in their life that lead them to some failures. We can't see all of that, only the Lord can. So what we have to do is be very careful in the selection of those who lead us. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He's saying this, Timothy, be careful. There might be some people out there that look like they're really qualified to be elders. And if you go too quickly and lay hands on them, you may end up unwillingly participating in some of their sins because of their character flaws that you did not clearly vet. Then he throws this parenthetical statement right in the middle of it. Hey, Timothy, by the way, no longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. People are like, why? Paul, what is that about? Well, Timothy was a pretty weak fellow that we see through scripture. He had a lot of ailments. Timothy probably made a commitment to abstain from all use of wine and alcohol because he wanted to make sure no one would stumble. But in all of that, he was drinking only water, which the water in that day was very impure, and the water was causing him to be sick. So most likely, Paul is saying, Timothy, I know that you want this quality of purity in your life, but listen, you're abstaining from these things is actually harming your body. Take a little wine because your stomach, take a little wine for medicinal purposes and use it. And so there's nowhere in scripture where elders are ever prohibited from using alcohol, but there are plenty scriptures that warn of the danger and the enslavement of alcohol. And so we have to understand both of those. Then he says this, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. There's some people, their lifestyles, whoo, man, you look at them and say, no, we don't want that guy. But you might look at another individual, but there are hidden sins that show up a little bit later. Then he makes a contrast. So also with good works are conspicuous. There are some people that, man, their works are really good. We need to look at that person. And then even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There's some whose works are not as clear. So here's what he's saying here. He said, don't choose too quickly people to serve in the position of elders, but don't choose too slowly because you're waiting to see some marvelous works that will appear later. And so there's this task of making sure that the qualified people we put in this position are going to be individuals who model godly character and godly purity, and their works are following along them. And as best as we can see, make sure that we have a process. We have a clear process at Scotts Hill. We watch individuals' lives. Then we have conversations with them. And if there's an interest to serve as an elder, we give them books to read. And we have times to meet with them over what they're reading to help them to understand it. Then they meet with the council of elders and the council of elders decides, is this something we want to go further? Then we give them a questionnaire. And it is a lengthy questionnaire to help them understand all that they understand, doctrinal matters. Then there's an interview. And if that interview goes well, then there's the presentation to you as a body. And then you examine. And if there are any people in the life of this church that say, hey, 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 I know this about this individual. It's not gossip. It is something that I have personally witnessed. We ask you to tell us. And as best as we can, with the work of the Holy Spirit, we choose godly people. So your response to the body is to celebrate those elders who serve well, to compensate, to be able to make sure that the accusations that are given are real. And in the difficult case, to terminate because that's your job to make sure that all is done well. And how do we end this? Let me bring it back to where we started. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Everything we do is to honor him. Everything we say is to glorify him. And as elders, we are submitted constantly to the lordship of Jesus and his word. And the members are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and his word. And you follow the leadership of your elders and we are accountable to you. That's a theocracy. And that's what God has called us to be. And as we seek to operate in this way, we work together for the glory of God, amen? We submit ourselves before you. And I tell our staff all the time, our greatest asset is our personal holiness. Our greatest asset for this ministry is our godly character. And as we walk according to that, seeking to please him, All the accusations of hell can come against us. But we're going to walk in a clear conscience and we are going to be transparent before you in all things. If you ever hear gossip against a pastor and you know it's gossip, for you to continue in the conversation, you have just seconded that but for you to end it, say, I don't know anything about it and you should not be speaking without the uh, uh, two or three witnesses. Don't talk to me about that anymore. It immediately dies. And we're not exempt, none of us, from the criticism of others. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your diligent care of elders and staff. And our desire is to do everything we can to rule well for the glory of Christ. I'm not saying this because I want to (sighs) raise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your instruction. Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. Father, I know there may be some in this audience who are former pastors and they've been hurt. I pray, Father, that you would bring healing to them. I know that there are some who are watching online who have been hurt. And Father, I pray that you would bring great healing to them through those difficult times and that you would uphold them with your grace and your power. And Father, I thank you for this body. And I pray, Father, as we continue to walk biblically according to your word, that we seek to do everything, taking seriously the charge that you have given us with grace and forgiveness and redemption. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at Scotshill.org slash steps Till next time.